what happened is obviously you leave your devices there and someone did take it i didn't even know because we had so many devices on the desk and i think it only happens in berlin and they brought it back the next day and they said oh you know it's great i'm like yeah please keep it don't give it back <laughs> <laughs> The other thing that we care a lot about is content which drives conversations. That's the one thing that most founders and people talking about startups don't talk about is the only thing my school focused on for the 12 years that I studied there was to be kind and that's it because they said whatever we teach you today when you leave you'll forget everything in a few years but you cannot forget to be kind i'm sam i'm 41 i'm based in london in the uk my company is mystery vibe we started a decade ago working on medical devices for genital pelvic pain period pain menopausal dryness vulva pain ed prostate health and lots of other areas of sexual health all of which can be addressed through precise delivery of medical vibrations So what we have done over the last 10 years is deep research with leading doctors to create medical vibrators which are very malleable. They bend to take different shapes of different body parts and deliver the right amount of frequency vibrations to help with blood flow and arousal. We have 100,000 patients across US using our products. We have leading doctors like from Mayo Clinic, Cedar Sinai, Rush and Chicago and lots of other places who now recommend and sell our products we have 6 fda devices 3 journal papers and 35 international design awards so that's the quick summary of mystery vibe so how big is your company could you give us some figures as far as like revenue employees and anything like that yes so our company is 15 people most of our work is in r&d so we have a very big lab in uk where we do everything end to end from concepting to early manufacturing with 15 people we also cover all of our direct to consumer sales all of our support and all of our marketing to so do we everything in house and then our revenue started when we got our fta in 2019 and since then we've doubled every year starting in 2019 at $400,000 to then doubling again and again to 3.2 million last year and this year we're on track to more than double to 8 million. So, do you have multiple products or are we talking about just like one vibrator? Like can you tell me a little bit more in detail about your products because if someone's just listening and they don't know and maybe they can check out your website too so they can understand what you're talking about as well. Yes. So we have six different vibrators. All of them are obviously FDA class 2 medical devices, but equally they are designed to be very very beautiful and pleasant to use in the bedroom and introduce to your partners the six devices do quite a few different things one is for genital pelvic pain which is a very common thing after childbirth another one is for vulva pain which is the pain at the entrance of the vagina then another one is for labia stimulation for ladies who are struggling after menopause or anyone struggling with dryness and arousal Then on the male sexual health side we focus on ED which is erectile dysfunction and prostate health so improving prostate health alleviating prostatitis which is pain of prostate improving the quality of the area and reducing the chances of cancer and on the ED side we have two devices one called Tinuto 2 and one called Tinuto Mini 
And what they do is stimulate the penis head, which is the glands with 360 vibrations. It also then constricts the blood flow, but allows ejaculation. So what that means is it helps you get erect. And then with it at the base, it helps you stay erect and ejaculate at the same time. And so are you a doctor or how did you get into this field of, I guess, sexual health? So I'm a PhD doctor. I did my PhD in biomedical engineering. I did that 19 years ago. So my first company was in biomedical in iris recognition. So I used to work with ophthalmologists and build eye systems. That sold in 2009. So that was acquired by a US defense company called Photonation in California. Then I spent seven years working in consulting at Deloitte, mostly to learn business and management. And then during that time, I always knew that I would go back to my first and main area of focus, which is biomedical engineering. And the topic that kept coming up was sexual health and issues that people face after major life events like menopause, like aging and ED, pain after childbirth. So all of these things just happen and often we don't know what the solutions are. So what I did is I got together with my old team from Bath, what we built before, and with the head of urology from King's College in London, who is one of the leading experts in the application of vibration in sexual health. And together we started and created these devices, which bring the knowledge of medical science with the mechanics and electronics of biomedical engineering and create devices which are safe and effective for people to use. Well, why did you decide to like get into sexual health? I know you kind of gave us a quick summary of how you got to your company today, but I mean, was there something stimulating about that? Yes. So I would say that myself and my co-founders, we knew that we wanted to solve something that mattered to us personally as our next big project in biomedical. So we always knew that we would continue working in the field. We just didn't know after our first exit, what that next project would be. And we had a long gap, which is seven years between our first biomedical project on eyes and this one, because we wanted to make sure that what we do next, and with all things medical, it takes a very long time. So what we do next, we passionately care about it, believe in it. And most importantly, if it succeeds, it will help the lives of a lot of people, that it wouldn't be something very small and niche. And as we explored more and more, the conversations that kept coming up were sexual health related, talking to people who had kids, talking to people who were getting older, talking to people who had stress-related issues. And often the biggest challenge was how do you keep the intimacy in a long-term relationship? How do you keep that mystery in the bedroom? And there wasn't really any discussion or solutions out there, at least 10 years ago when we started. So it seemed like a significant area which affects almost everyone and an area which needed action, which didn't really have much going on. Well, when you started Mystery Vibe, did you just start with one product? Correct. Our first focus, again, with personal experience, was focusing on post-childbirth pain, which affects every single mom. You know, it's literally a byproduct of childbirth. So the question for us is, what can we add to this field of medicine that will make a solution accessible and affordable to mums? Because the solution does exist, which is pelvic flow therapy. Now, the problem with that is you need time 
which is very difficult for a mom. Real quick. Yeah. What was it called? Pelvic therapy? Yes. Pelvic floor therapy. PT. Yeah. Okay. Just, yeah, just pelvic therapy. I'll just make sure we're on the same page. Cause especially if you're a guy, I don't know any of this stuff. So. No. And, and that is an excellent point. Most people, and I'm talking about almost everyone, you know, outside the world of urology and gynecology, even doctors who are not in sexual medicine don't understand what pelvic floor is. Well, how do you spell it? Like, um, maybe I'm not, I don't know if I'm totally understanding. Pelvic is in P-E-L-V-I-C. So it is the floor, which is the muscles that sit basically under the uterus, which means it sits in your hip cage. Yeah, just above the hip cage. And the reason it has a lot of pressure during childbirth is because as the placenta and the baby grow inside the uterus, it can weigh 20 kilos. And it is something that the pelvic floor is not used to carrying and for such a long period of time. So as a result of having that child, what happens is the floor gets weak. And if you don't then exercise or do therapy, you might have incontinence, you might have pain and other issues related to that. So in a simple term, it's that is the floor needs to be improved. And the way it's done is the therapist will use their fingers to reach through the vagina onto the floor. And very similar to what a chiropractor would do for back pain, using their hands to press and massage the areas which have pain is exactly what a pelvic floor therapist would do using their fingers to reach and massage the areas which have pain and then alleviate that pain. Now, the challenge for the mums is finding time. Well, first finding the therapist near enough, then finding time to go there, have the therapy, and then doing that multiple times a week for many weeks, which then comes with its own cost as well. So what happens in reality is, one, most people don't know what it is and what to do about it. And two, even if they do know they need to do something, they don't have the time or money. So, so this was the first challenge we wanted to solve with the help of the product we designed called Crescendo, which mimics the two fingers that a therapist would use to reach inside. And the biggest advantage of this is the therapist themselves can reach further and address the pain better. But more importantly, they can then train the patient to take it home and do it whenever they get 10 minutes of their time, which is much easier to do, than have to come back for therapy for a couple of hours of their day of traveling to get there and come back, and then the money that goes with it. So the significant change happened because we could make these devices very easy for the user to use following simple instructions that they can bring about a genuine relief to their pain and then address it properly. Well, before we talk about Crescendo, this first product that you developed, could you go again more in detail of like, did you have a wife that was having issues after childbirth or I guess describe a little bit more in detail how you knew you could make a product and hopefully make money from it? Because I think that's what a lot of people come up with issues like, okay, I can brainstorm any product, but how do I know the market's actually going to accept it, if it's going to work out? And what did you have to do to make sure that, I guess, to hedge your bets that this would work and just give us a little bit more details about before even building the product, what you did to make sure that the market would be interested in it? That's a really good question. The real answer is we didn't know. So the biggest challenge with medical devices is 
you could spend years on research and it doesn't work. Yeah. And it is one of those things. So just to start from the beginning. So when we started, and I say, you know, we as in all, all three co-founders, we put in our own money from our previous exit because we didn't really want to raise money externally before we got to a point where we think there is at least some chance that this will be effective as a solution. Yeah. And the challenge we had is with medical devices, you can't get to a point which is testable without spending a decent amount of money on the R&D, on the compliance that it's human safe to trial. Can you give us the details of how much money y'all put in? We put in a million pounds of capital because that was an amount of money that we had set aside for our next venture. So we were with the mindset that if we lost it, at least we put it to good use trying to solve a problem that we cared about. And it was something from before that we were lucky to have. So that was our mindset in how much we were happy to set aside to get to a point that we thought was viable, that we could ask for external investor money. And then we spend the next two years focusing on the R&D, the research, the doctors, the patients, just interviewing, understanding what is it we're trying to build. Technically, what are the challenges? Can we actually build it? If we can build it, what's the right price point that it needs to be for patients to be happy with? So for example, what's the cost of one visit to a PT? And can we price the product to be less than a cost of one visit to a PT? Then it's really easy to explain that it's a one-off cost and it's less than one visit to a PT. But in order to do that, what is the price at which it needs to be manufactured, then logistics costs, marketing costs, support costs, all of that together. So those are the kind of things we worked out in the first couple of years with our own funding. Whereas later, once we had a fully working product to get to the next stage, like FDA, clinical trials, it needs further funding. But by then, we were relatively confident that this had legs. However, I still told my investors early on that this would be a 10-year project, not a five-year project, to really make a difference and to do much more than just one product. And they need to be very patient and happy to support this project for the next 10 years to see real value. And only if they were happy to do that does the investment make sense. So that's something I always told my investors early on. And it's something you will hear more in the life sciences sector. It's a 10-year plan, not a five-year plan. So that's kind of the early days where we were very comfortable with the concept that it's our money and we will do our level best to make it work. And if it doesn't, we have tried everything we can, but we haven't lost anyone else's money. So that was the mindset we had to start with. And only after that, once we got to a point where we knew that it made sense to go further with FDA trials and clinical trials, and then we needed more capital that we raised external funding. Okay. Well, yeah. And I'm excited to get into details of that because that's what I like to do with our guests, especially ones who've made a successful product because it's not easy. But before we do, you said you had two other co-founders. Who were they? Two other co-founders are my wife and Rob, my CTO. So all of us worked together in our old company in Iris Biometrics back in Bath, so University of Bath, which is where we studied. And we always knew that we would, once we exited the last company, we always knew that we would do another 
project that we really cared about together. And this is the topic that became more and more obvious to all of us. Rob's now has two grandkids and we have one kid. So we've gone through a lot of the issues that we try to solve ourselves. Rob's in his 50s, I'm in my 40s. So we go through similar age-related issues ourselves. Both my sister and my mom had hysterectomies quite a while back. So I got to learn about uterus-related issues from them and their doctors. So it's just things that are so close to you that you can't really escape, which is sexual health issues. You can't really escape them. Even if people don't talk about it, it will catch up. And if you do nothing about it, like with pain, like with dryness, like with prostate health, if you do nothing about it, it will only get worse. So yeah, that's what all three of us really cared about in terms of at least trying to find significant solutions which people can access very easily wherever they live. I'm here with Megan Bennett. How's it going, Megan? It is going great. How's my favorite podcast host and the most handsome young man? I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for stating the obvious, Megan. But we're here to talk about you and your company, Light Years Ahead. I interviewed Megan on episode 177 of this very podcast, and she helped all of our Patreon members on Group Call 3. So you can hear more about Megan and how she helped our Patreon members there as well. So would you mind telling us what you do and how you could help our listeners, Megan? Yes. So my agency is Light Years Ahead, and we're boutique, but we're a national PR firm. We're women-owned, and we focus on emerging brands, experts, and services in the consumer lifestyle space. We're based throughout the U.S. We're in New York, Kansas City, L.A., and Dallas. And we really specialize in maximizing media exposure for brands and experts, which can then create more sales and brand awareness and influence buying decisions. Our clients range everything from small startups looking to make a name for themselves to large brands that are trying to become relevant again. My agency, Light Years Ahead, we target the very top editors, writers, and producers across all different media outlets. And we've been doing this for over 20 years, which has earned us a very strong reputation with the top media, with outlets like BuzzFeed, Today Show, Good Morning America, Refinery29, Pop Sugar, Forbes, and many more. We can help you grow your brand into a household name. Well, that sounds awesome. So if someone might be interested in your service, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, the best way to reach out is to email me at Megan, M-E-G-A-N, at lightyearsahead.com. That's Megan at lightyearsahead.com. Or you can check out our services and capabilities at lightyearsahead.com, our website. And I know you've helped a few of our past guests as well with their PR, and they do sing your praises. So hopefully you can help some of our listeners as well. Absolutely. And we love working with your listeners and entrepreneurs who are really passionate about what they're doing. And this is what we want to offer your listeners. The first five listeners that schedule a call with us to develop a PR campaign will receive $500 off their first month of services with us. It's a great deal. Awesome. And one more time, what's the best place for them to reach you to pick you up on that offer? You can reach me at Megan at lightyearsahead.com or check out our website at lightyearsahead.com or you can go to our Instagram page at L-Y-A-P-R. Again, I'm interested in how you started expanding your products, but if we kind of zone in on this first one still, if that's okay, was the light bulb moment, did your wife give birth and she was having issues where it was sore and so that's kind of how you came up with the product? I understand you're saying you had mom and sister and everything like that, but I think it's always got to start somewhere. And 
That's why I was wondering who your co-founders, if you even had a woman, I'm like, how do you really know? I know you, we can all say the pain, but you know, if you have someone who's actually an investor and kind of understands, I think it helps a lot more. So just describe a little bit more in detail of the light bulb moment, if there was one, and just after you put in all this money, how you got there. The pelvic pain point, yes, that is 100% correct. You're right. So my wife went through the same challenge that almost every mom goes through of post childbirth pain for months. And like she had to sit on a donut, for example, because she couldn't sit on a normal chair. So that was very much there. But that happened a bit later, a few years after we started, because our kid was born a bit later. But I would say the one closest to me was my sister and her kid, my niece, because she had lots of complications from childbirth, infection, which ultimately led to her uterus being removed due to hysterectomy. And I I was very close to that, you know, looking after my niece and witnessing that up close and personal. So I would say my sister's childbirth, particularly because it was complex, was probably the one I was most driven by is how can we help a little bit, you know, whatever little we can. Whereas my wife's childbirth was much later, a few years into starting our company. So on the bright side, she could benefit from all the knowledge we had gathered, all the expertise we had built with other doctors and the devices which were by then testable. And in, in the, it was in the stage where it was testable by humans. So yeah, it's kind of like a two-stage thing. And so before we kind of like rewind to your origin story and how you got started and grew up and everything, is there anything else we should know about Mystery Vibe? Well, again, we'll dive into details where we left off here as far as your first product and the products afterwards. But is there anything overall that maybe we should know about, again, before we rewind? I think the other thing that we care a lot about is content, which drives conversations. Because the products and the devices and solutions are obviously really important to solve the issues, whatever the issues are. But you can't really get to the products and the solution if you can't talk about them. So if you can easily bring up the topic, let's say, let's just talk about erectile dysfunction, which is really simple to explain. So let's say in a relationship, a guy is struggling with his erection, maybe he can't get erect, but can't maintain his erection, or he just has a lot of performance anxiety. So very common things. Now, the biggest challenge is not finding a solution. The biggest challenge is talking about it. So a lot of what we do, as much as the product side, is writing content. Hundreds of pieces every month, thousands over the years, on every topic you can imagine in sexual health, whether it's ED, whether it's helping restart the intimacy in the bedroom if sex has disappeared for a while, whether it's what to do after menopause, cancer recovery. It could be very medical, it could be very clinical, it could be very sexy, it could be very fun. So we write about everything. And we give very specific instructions to people like, if you want to talk about a desire with your partner, you don't necessarily need to be scared about saying it directly, because that often comes with the fear of rejection. But you can make it an interesting conversation by sharing an article in a newspaper like New York Times. If you trust it and your partner trusts it, share an article about that a desire that you have. Like, let's say, maybe listening to audio erotica is something you want to do with your partner, but you're not sure, how do I talk to him or her about it? And the question then is, what's the safest way to bring this up without the fear of rejection? And we talk about this in our content where we say, 
find a really interesting article on audio erotica in a very trusted newspaper like New York Times or BBC or somewhere, then share it with your partner, see their reaction, and if they're excited about it, then you know you can pursue further. So we do a lot of writing, a lot of researching, working with collaborators to create deep content, and then we try and get it out there with press, with social media, with campaigns, and try to get people reading and use that as a catalyst for the conversations in their bedroom. So would you say the evolution of Mystery Vibe at first was kind of like helping with pain for women through childbirth, but then it became more sexual products? Well, they're, I don't know if you call them sex toys or, or what you want to call them, but is that kind of the evolution of what happened with Mystery Vibe over the last, I guess, 10 years? So what I would say is the evolution became more from devices to devices plus conversation. So when we started, we knew that we would always build multiple devices and pelvic pain was just one of many, many things we wanted to solve, like ED, period pain, vulvar pain. Like we knew that from the beginning that we would always have many solutions for different issues. What we didn't know early on is we would end up building a, a huge website of content as an equally important part of our work. Because as engineers, as biomedical engineers, really all we thought about is solutions and efficacy and engineering and medical trials and iterating based on that. So that's really our core mindset. But as we spend more and more time understanding the user behavior, we realize that building the best solution in the world isn't good enough if no one knows how to talk about it with their partner and introduce it into the bedroom. And that knowledge is significantly missing from the majority of the population, even things like pelvic pain. Most people don't know what it is. So if we don't spend a lot of our time investing in doing the research and creating the content and sending it out there, then we haven't really done our job fully. So that is something that the company evolved into, say, I would say maybe two or three years in, whereas in the beginning, we focus 100% on the engineering and we always knew we would be building many devices, but we didn't know we will be writing thousands of pieces of content to support that. And if someone wanted to check out your products, what's the best website for them to go to? Just our main site, mysteryvibe.com, which is the core of what we do is how do we, or our solutions, whether it's the devices or the content, help people bring that mystery back into the bedroom. So it's simply mysteryvibe.com. And so when you're trying to like sell doctors on using your products, right? Because that's part of what you have to do, right? As well. I mean, do you point them to the same website or what do they end up doing? Like, how do you end up reaching them? So yeah, so that's a really good question. We have a very doctor-facing healthcare clinical website called MySexMD. The biggest difference between the two is the clinical text that we have in the MySexMD website, which gives them a lot more information on our medical trials, on our FDA, on the clinical evidence, the secondary research before it, which most consumers don't really want to get into. We do have that on our mystery website under the health section. But what consumers care more about is the content to start conversations, learning about the product benefits, which is you know, the typical consumer-facing website. Whereas our doctor-facing website, again, sells exactly the same products. It's the same warehouse, same everything, but with just with a lot more clinical text and clinical evidence. Yeah. And I think that's super smart, like kind of having these two different websites, one's more geared towards doctors because you're trying to sell them because they're more interested in studies, it sounds like. And versus if I'm a consumer, I don't give a shit about the studies. I mean, unless I'm really going into details, I'm just like, okay, does it work or does it not work? So did you 
figure that out over time. I should have two different companies or two different websites, one targeted towards doctors, then one targeted toward consumers. Like, how did you figure out to do that? Yes. Again, you're absolutely right. It was definitely an evolution. So that was actually from the medical community. So they asked us to build a site which gave them all the information they needed, one for themselves and two to share with their patients in a simple way with very few pages. And we built it really as a requirement from the doctor's side. So we never really planned to have that till we were told we, they needed it. Yeah, but it looks great because you can tell it's kind of the same template. The one's the mysterybibe.com and then the other one, again, to my sex MD, but kind of have the same font and logo and feel on a, of it all. So it's kind of cool that you have this, like you could definitely go to one of those. And if you go to the other one, you're like, oh yeah, they're definitely related. Yeah. 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 That was definitely the, that was the goal. Yeah. How long ago did the doctor community kind of ask you to do that or the medical community? A couple of years ago, it was during COVID times when they started to recommend more online purchases. So during the early time of the COVID years, the doctors stopped trying to buy products and keeping it in the clinic and then selling it in the clinic, which is what they used to do before a lot more. But then they started recommending their patients to come to our website and buying it. So would you mind going ahead and rewinding your story of, I guess, when you came out of high school or where you went to college? And let's just talk about the run up to Mystery Vibe. When I went to high school, oh, that's a really good question. Actually, I fell in love with engineering maybe when I was 12, when I got my first assembled computer where I had to assemble the bits. This is 30 years ago. So you had to buy lots of different bits and bobs, like the motherboard and the processor and the CD drive and floppy drive, hard disk, all of the bits, and then build your computer by yourself and then figure out how to install an operating system from multiple floppy disks. So that's when I fell in love with hardware generally. And then over the years till I got to university, I just tinkered with different hardware projects, built electronic circuits, like simple breadboards with transistors, resistors, LEDs to do like motion sensing, very basic stuff. And then for me, it was obvious that I wanted to study that more. So I studied my undergrad in electronics. And then by the end of my undergrad, I felt I knew even less than when I started because I realized how little I know and how much I wanted to learn this. So then I did my master's, PhD, and postdoc in biomedical. And then real quick, yeah, before we go any further, so you did your bachelor's and then you did your PhD master's right afterwards. So it was a lot of college in a row. Yeah, a lot. Okay. Yeah, I was 26 when I finished studying. So I had studied, yeah, nonstop. That was 2007 from what I'm looking at. But before that, do you mind just your personal life? Like when I was saying, I guess even, did you have any brothers and sisters? Did you grow up in London? Just curious about that. Oh, right. No, I have only one sister. Yeah. And yeah, we grew up together in Calcutta which is in east of India. And I went to an Irish Jesuit school because Calcutta used to be the British capital when India was British. And they had a lot of schools from back like 100 years ago. And I went to one of those schools. So I'm really grateful for that because the only thing my school focused on for the 12 years that I studied there was to be kind. And that's it because they said, whatever we teach you today, when you leave, you'll forget everything in a few years. But you cannot forget to be kind, even if you're 100 years old. So that's the only thing you need to remember. And the only thing, you know, we need to teach you. And the rest you can always figure out. And that's why I'm very grateful for my education in Irish Jesuit school in India, which is not common. 
I do want to hone on this because it's interesting. This kind of makes your story stand out. So I'm looking at it. Is it spelled K-O-L-K-A-T-A, the city? Correct. Yeah. Okay. And so was it just a city in India or was it like a country at one point? Like, can you explain that a little bit more? No, no. It's a, so Calcutta is a city just like London. It's a lot bigger. It's 20 million people. It's kind of the same as New York in population. It's very busy, very dense, just like most Indian cities. But it's very old in terms that the city was the British capital. So a lot of his architecture is British. Like it has St. Paul's Cathedral. It has a Victoria Memorial. So the kind of stuff that you would expect in London is all in Calcutta. Calcutta is famous for Mother Teresa. So she built the sisters of her charity in Calcutta and looked after the poor. So that's one of the big things Calcutta is very famous for. And yeah, generally, Calcutta is the kind of city where people care about looking after people. People care about being kind. People care about knowledge. Where wealth is knowledge, as in, you know, you're rich in knowledge. You don't necessarily have to be rich in money because it's not the financial capital. It's the intellectual capital. So it's a very interesting city to grow up in. And then you said Jesuit school, because I have heard that before. And I'm just Googling in case anyone's doing something and can't Google while they're listening or interested. So Jesuit schools are basically just Catholic schools. Is that true? Yes, correct. So they, they are Catholic priests from Ireland, at least the ones in my school. My school is called St. Xavier's. So it's based, or it's their saint that they follow. It's St. Francis Xavier, who was in Goa, which is a state in India, which was under Portuguese rule for a long time. And when you go to the church of St. Francis Xavier in Goa, you can still see the body in a glass casket. And it's considered a miracle because the body is intact and you can just look at it and it's not mummified or doesn't have any chemicals or anything. Yeah, you can still go today and see it. Where did you say Francis Xavier? And that's X-A-V-I-E-R because I've heard of Xavier University, but where is his body located? In Goa, G-O-A. It's a state in the west of India near Mumbai. Okay. I mean, I've never even heard of this. See, so you're giving me information that I guess maybe I can go travel and see his body one day, huh? Yeah, definitely look it up. It's genuinely a miracle is that his body is intact after 300 years in a glass box, like no decay. So that's what our school's saint is, which is what our school's name is on St. Xavier's. And yes, you're right. There, there were Irish Catholic priests who were part of the Jesuit groups. And one of the biggest objective of the Jesuits were to travel the world and educate kids so that they can get out of poverty through education. So you can learn and be successful later in life. So what happened is over the 150 years that they did this work, their schools became some of the best schools, wherever they're, they're in Africa, they're in India, in most parts of the original East India Company, which was the British Empire. So the people in those cities, even though the British have left, still love going to those schools, and which is why my parents picked that for me. And I'm really grateful because I loved being at that school for 12 years and learning and focusing on things that matter, like being kind and being curious rather than trying to memorize lots of books. And so after you got done with the school there, like the kindergarten through 12th, you ended up doing college in India as well? Correct. Yes. I did my undergrad in Calcutta as well, studying in Kolani University, which is a really good electronics engineering university. And that's where I did my undergrad. And then you said you had your PhD right afterwards. So where was that? 
Yes, so I did my master's and PhD and postdoc, all three of them in Bath, which is a little village in the west of England near Bristol. And again, a really good engineering focused university here in the UK. So this is interesting to me because it's kind of like your first big move, I guess, physically, right? I mean, if you're going to England, are you going by yourself? Just tell us about the transition of how that went for you. Yes, it was the first time I had lived outside home, for sure. But because I studied in a English school, and Irish is still very similar to English education, my upbringing and viewpoints were very similar to what I experienced in UK. So for me, I felt I didn't change beyond physically moving. I didn't feel like it was a significant change in my environment where everything there was the same type of education, same language, very similar, even sense of humor as what I experienced here. And I had family here already. So a lot of my uncles and cousins live in England. So I used to come to England often. So it was the most natural place to study further for me and it's something I knew I would do. So it wasn't really much of a change, I would say. It was quite a smooth transition. And is that, I mean, from my experience, I mean, just as a tourist, it seems like there are a good amount of Indians, at least like in London, whenever I've gone. Is that because of this connection that you're saying, like the Jesuit schools there and they're learning English at these Catholic schools and it's an easy kind of transition like you had, it sounded like? Yes. No, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of Asians generally. Indians, Pakistanis, Bangladeshis, Sri Lankans, here in both London and England. And the reason is because India was under British rule for probably 300 years, the only language that is common to all Indians is English. Before the British came, Indians were different kingdoms, and they all had their own language, own food, own culture, and there was no common ground. Now, the British taught everybody English and everybody now obviously speaks in English with each other because there's no other way. So when the British left, a lot of Indians who worked in the empire, even though they were Indians, they also moved for jobs, for business, for opportunity. And there's the single biggest ethnicity after white English is Indians. And I guess because India was part of UK for so long, it was just a natural thing that a lot of Indians would live here. I guess it's no different from, say, Algeria and France, because the French have been in Algeria for so long that a lot of Algerians are in France. So I guess that's kind of the reason why England is very Indian-rich. And also that means it's a very easy transition if you're Indian to move to England, because pretty much everything is similar. We both drive on the wrong side of the road. So not many countries do that. Yeah. I feel like England's like the only one. Like, it's funny, you go to the other countries in Europe and, it's, you know, I guess like the US, it seems like. And thanks for that tidbit about Algeria and France, because I've always wondered that too. Because my association is like, I know a lot from soccer and I'm like, I knew a lot of Algerians were in France, but I didn't know why. But you're saying it sounds like, I guess, because those cities, whether it's Algiers or whatever other cities were occupied by France for so long that it was an easy connection. Correct. And also it's a language when the French, when they were running Algeria, they were teaching everybody French. So if someone wants to migrate, the first thing they would think of is going to a place they can speak the language. That makes total sense. Well, yeah, again, thanks for the history. Okay, so then you come to London and you do your PhD. And so what's your first job coming out of that? 
So my PhD was my startup. It was very much accidental. I was researching on iris biometrics. And then as we developed the product further and started working with companies who wanted to use the software, and so my professor created the company in order to monetize the software that we built. So I had a small part of it. And then we had 10 clients, mostly US defense companies working in security. And then one of the clients bought the company in 2009. So very much accidental. Really, my focus was all the R&D and research and product development. Then once we exited, uh, once we sold it and we were free to go do our next thing, I realized that one of the things I really lacked was good understanding of business and management. And there was the option of going and doing an MBA, but it was very expensive and I really wanted to learn on the job. So I joined consulting because consulting is a great area to learn business uh, on the job. And I picked Deloitte because it's in, still is the biggest consulting firm in the world. So you get some of the most challenging projects. So I joined Deloitte and I moved to London right after our company sold. Yeah. Before we get into consulting, because it sounds like you brushed under the rug. So you're doing just your PhD, right? For three years, it was like 2004 to 2007. And then while you're there, you're saying a professor started a company and you became part of that company. And that's where you made all your money to eventually invest in Mystery Vibe. Can you give me some more details on that, please? Just the name of the company and let's dive in deeper. I don't want to just brush this over. Sure, sure. Yes. So my PhD supervisor, my professor, he created the company with me and another guy to monetize the research that we did as the PhD. And the company was called Smart Sensors. That was the one that got acquired later. So it was my professor who came up with the idea. So then I did the PhD and did the work as in research and building the product. And then he made it into a startup of which I was a part of. And then it was acquired later in 2009. Well, what is Smart Sensors? I mean, I'm still not understanding exactly what it did. I heard defense company and that's about all I've taken away from this so far. Right. So if you think of an airport and you do immigration checks, your immigration official is scanning you and you look into a camera and if the camera looks at your eyes and recognizes you, that's what we built. Oh, well, no, no wonder how you made so much money from this. Like me not even knowing anything about that, like facial, you're talking about facial recognition. I'm talking about eye recognition. Yeah. It's, it's similar, very similar. It's just a different part of the body. So like fingerprint is a biometric face is one and eye is one. So we did eyes. So that was our research and that was our company. Was yours the software or the hardware of this? The software of it. Yeah. Because the hardware is just a camera. So basically what we use is a camera with infrared light to get a very detailed image of the iris and all its ridges and textures. And then our software would extract that image, unwrap it and convert it into binary, then create a lookup table and place it in a long sequence of database. So there were two fundamental things that we invented. One was the matching. How can you accurately match an image of an eye with the stored image of the same person? So that's one thing. And two is how can you search using hash tables, a very, very long database. So let's say our project was in India. It's called the ID, Aadhaar ID cards, which has 1.3 billion people on it. And how do you search 1.3 billion people for a match, which you can't do sequentially because it will take forever. So how do you find the address or to a certain extent, so it's fuzzy, it's fuzzy logic, you have to find the address and find that area of the database 
So your search is, say, 10 million records rather than 1,300 million records. Well, how do you do that? It's quite straightforward in the sense that the iris is unique. So everybody's eye is completely unique because it's created as a muscle, the iris is muscle, and it's purely formed in the womb under pressure. And it does continue to form in the initial years of a kid, but by seven or eight, it's pretty fixed and it's, it really would never change. So because it's unique, the pattern it creates will be unique, which converted to binary will be unique. And then we can use what is similar to compression algorithms to determine based on the characteristics of that binary code, which segment of the database it should sit in. And then you only have to search that segment of the database rather than the whole database. Yeah, that, that makes sense. I mean, it sounds simple and thought process, but I'm sure obviously it was complicated and that's why you get paid so much. And just so everyone knows that, I mean, I've heard of iris and people, it's just the iris is the color part. So if I have blue eyes versus green eyes, you've already cut my database maybe in half or whatever, right? I mean, not necessarily half, you know the percentages, but that's kind of how you're able to cut it down from 1.3 billion to say 10 million or 100 million, is what you're saying? Correct, yes, because you can segment into lots of different types of irises and then within that uh, different patterns. And then you can say in this database, we will put these type of irises in this segment. So you only search that segment. Yeah, correct. And then so when you're doing this study with the software with your professor, you said it was you, the professor, and then one other PhD student who were involved in making this company? No, one other person, which is a business person. So my professor had the idea, then I did the research and coding. And we had another person who was a business associate of the professor who did all the sales and finding the clients and doing the integrations because we had a lot of integrations with the defense companies who provided the hardware, like the cameras, and we provided the software. So why did your professor loop you into this? Because uh, I did all the research and the development of the product. But how many students were in your PhD program? Uh, this was just my PhD. No, the other, other PhDs were doing different things like different topics. Yeah, but how many PhDs were there total in this program? At my time, I think nine. There were nine students under my professor, yeah. Gotcha. Well, I didn't know specifically because I don't, I don't know if you undersell yourself, you know, as far as is there a reason he really wanted you? I understand you're doing your PhD on it, but maybe you chose this PhD or your professor told you to do this PhD because he saw something in you that could help you figure this out. Like if you knew a lot about software or programming or whatever, because I want, I want to hone in on this for a while, if that's okay, before we jump to Deloitte and Mystery Vibe. Just, you know more than me, why, what, is there something specific that you were really good at? So for PhD, there were a couple of things why, my, because it was fully funded, it was a full scholarship PhD, I had to apply for it from my undergrad while I was in my undergrad in India, and I applied to get it. So the two reasons he picked me was, one, I wrote a really detailed research proposal on biometrics, I was already doing some research using pattern recognition and machine learning. I was working on different things. I was working on satellite images and understanding how we can make those images better and recognize things from them. And I liked the application of that, the image processing, machine learning, pattern recognition group of skill sets to biometrics because it was still very early days. Biometrics wasn't really a thing. Very few people talked about it. And I love that topic, which is why I picked but because there was one of the few universities which was interested in it. And then I reached out and I wrote a proposal on potential things we could do in biometrics. Of course, very rudimentary compared to what my professor knew. 
And then the other thing was, they obviously look at your exams in your undergrad. So I was the first student in the university for my department. So that helped. Again, I'm just hopefully helping people unless they just think I'm an idiot and I have to Google this while you're going, because I've heard of biometrics before too. And what I'm looking at is it says biometrics are body measurements and calculations related to human characteristics. Biometric authentication is used in computer science as a form of identification and access control. It is also used to identify individuals and groups that are under surveillance. So hopefully that helps unless there's any other definitions or thought process that you can maybe help listeners. No, no, you're absolutely right. It's really two things, bio and metrics. All it means is measuring some body part or body characteristics. So whether it's your fingerprint, your eye, your face, your walking, you can even measure someone's walking. That's called gait recognition. It measures your mouth too, right? Because I know like in passports, they tell you not to smile, right? For a reason, I imagine. It's to do with the data points on your face. So if you smile, the points move. So it's not that easy to match, which is the reason why iris is better. It doesn't really, you can even wear glasses. You can even wear tinted glasses and you'll still be fine. Wow. I didn't even think about that, how hard it is. Oh, that's why they make you take your glasses off, right? For face recognition, you need to take your glasses off, but for iris, you don't need to. Wow. Even with iris, you don't. Well, I guess, I mean, it's still pretty amazing though. If you're you're scanning through a lens and I guess you can figure out the color and stuff, but yeah, I guess even when you're saying facial recognition, now it's coming together, why they make you do all that stuff. I never really thought about it. I figured it, but now I'm understanding biometrics is called what it is because of biology, I guess, is BIO, right? And the metrics is the number. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. You're spot on. Okay. And so what really made you enjoy learning about this? Like when you're an undergrad and you wrote that paper and then see this one, I, I, I can tell you're an underseller. Like you got a full scholarship <laughs> PhD to Bath University from India. Like what made you interested in this biometrics field? So when I was in my final year and I was doing my research projects, I always knew that I wanted to study further because uh, I knew so little at the end of my undergrad. But I wanted to study something that I could apply in real life, like it could create an actual product, a product that people can use. That's something I really wanted to do out of my PhD. What I didn't want is to do a PhD, which is so theoretical that I could write some papers, but there won't be any real world application maybe ever. So I actually got another PhD offer from Cambridge, which I really love. Obviously, Cambridge is a great university and Trinity College is one of the best colleges in the world. But the topic was wavelets which is a very important thing as a fundamental for deriving other things. But the issue with that was researching on wavelets meant it would be highly theoretical and there would not be any real applications of my project in the near term. So that's why I preferred going for a much more practical and hands-on PhD where I spent a long time building stuff, integrating with cameras, working with Pentagon, putting our systems in things like Iris on the Move, which was like a metal detector in an airport, but you just walk and you don't even have to slow down and it quickly captures your eye and opens the gate. So there's a high-speed flow of passengers. So we, we implemented that and then really cool stuff that we did over the years of my PhD and postdoc and stuff that I wouldn't have been able to do if I took up my offer in Cambridge. No, I mean, makes sense. So you're saying... The Pentagon and these special U.S. bases or whatever, they're using your software to understand the iris and let you into certain rooms, et cetera? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Okay. How much did they end up eventually buying the company for? They bought the company for $20 million. So the way it worked was we had 10 clients who paid 200000 as an annual license fee for using our software and our services. 
and then it was a 10x of the annual revenue. And when you were doing your PhD and doing, I guess, this business, I guess, is it one and the same? Because if you're doing a PhD paper, it was all kind of just this one thing. Like you weren't doing a PhD on something else, like you said, and then doing this company on the side. No, no, it was it was entirely the same thing. The only thing extra that I did was travel to different sites to do integration of our software with hardware. But that also helped us understand how we can make our product better. So I wouldn't say I did much else outside what was my core research anyway. Well, this sounds like, honestly, the perfect PhD for anybody. Like as far as you get to work on a business technology-wise that, okay, if it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. I guess you still get your PhD, right? But the opportunity to actually build a business while you're in school is pretty cool. Oh, yeah, totally. I, I am so grateful that happened because I didn't know when I applied. I just applied because I love the topic and I wanted to work in this area. I had no expectations beyond it. You know, all I wanted to do is learn, play around with the tech, build some cool stuff, and that's it. And then it became a company because my professor was very entrepreneurial. So he made that happen. And, and his business partner, they made it happen. And I just got to ride along on the journey and go and meet really cool people in various defense sectors and work with them, learn so much. I'm here with John Austinson. How are you doing today, John? Hey, Austin, doing great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Well, thank you for supporting the podcast. And I interviewed John on episode 250 of this very podcast. So you can hear more about John's story and how he grew Franbridge Consulting right here. But in the meantime, would you mind reminding our listeners what you do and what you could potentially help them with? Yeah, you know, we work with entrepreneurs and investors across the country, helping them get into business ownership through franchising. And when I say franchising, you likely think fast food, and yet there's so many other industries out there from home and property services to health and wellness, from kids, pets, the aging population, oil changes, all of these understandable cash flowing businesses that oftentimes are recession resistant. And 90% of our clients end up purchasing an opportunity they never thought about. We work with the largest brokerage in the country, over 600 different franchise companies. Having been a franchise or a franchisee myself, I'm very picky about which ones that we show to our clients, only the best of the best. The great thing, Austin, is it's entirely free to work with us. We're funded by the companies, very much like an executive search type model, so our clients never pay us a nickel. And we do more deals for our clients than anybody else in the country. And what does a typical client look like for you? Two thirds of our clients would be looking to keep their day job. They're looking to get into business ownership, maybe as a side hustle, or maybe they're already a business owner and they can't give their full attention. We work with doctors, lawyers, existing business owners, corporate executives, really a wide array of backgrounds all around the country. As far as anyone who might be interested in your service, is there a best way for them to reach you? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com. That's F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com. For all of your listeners, Austin, we'll also send them a copy of our new book, either audio or PDF version, or they can purchase it on Amazon. But I would love to share that. Our book is called Non-Food Franchise, and we've gotten great feedback since its release. If you're interested in taking a next step, you know, let my assistant Ashley know, and uh, she'll schedule a call, and we'll discuss your situation and what could be a good fit. Yeah. And I know you've already scheduled a few calls with our listeners. Could you just tell them what that typically is like, like how long and if it's free for them to do? Yeah, we've had a great response from your listeners. Entirely free. Because of the caliber of folks that we work with, we cut to the chase. We usually spend 20 to 30 minutes on that first call. And then as the next step, that following week, we'll come to them with opportunities, usually around 10 or so in their market. They're available to check all the boxes and we talk them through those and then uh, make introductions to the ones that seem most intriguing to them. Well, that sounds awesome. And again, if someone was interested in scheduling a call, where's the best place for them to go ahead and sign up? Yeah, come out to our website, franbridgeconsulting.com, F-R-A-N, bridgeconsulting.com, and uh, we would love to engage.
it is interesting that like you said you were interested in biometrics and whatnot but again coming to coming back specifically were you developing the software i know you said you're going to sites and getting feedback and things like that but i guess more specifically what was your role in this phd and what, what were you doing tactically to help build this company we started with a blank piece of paper and it was my job to fill up the paper with code so yeah I, I did write the whole thing because as a professor you have ideas and you tell your students okay here's an idea you know go figure it out that's the whole point of phd right you figure it out from scratch yeah so when i started there was a blank piece of paper and then my professor told me okay this is my idea go figure out how can you use so the idea was using something called discrete cosine transform it's like a way to create patterns by transforming images into binary yeah so it's basically i just think of it as a box where on one side you put in an input like an image of an eye and on the other side it will come out with some numbers so that's the concept so then i researched on it and i built a code yeah over the years interesting so it's called dct discrete cosine co o s i n e transform is what you're talking about that's correct yeah that's the fundamental behind the pattern recognition correct so we're just putting numbers to colors or objects or images to so that way a computer on the back end can research it like that because it can't physically see i guess what we're doing but that's how you're able to make in the numbers so it can recognize the different peoples and their irises so it's more you take the image you convert the image into numbers so that's step one and then you take those numbers and pass it through the transform to create patterns that you can store mm, okay gotcha that's the transform part there, I guess, right? Discrete. All right. So we're that means we're doing another table, right? It's with cosine. I was thinking so, so discrete means it's instead of being analog. Yeah. Oh, see, so it's not the same as the other discrete. Analog would mean, you know, it's a continuous like a wave, right? Whereas discrete you can think of it as digital. It means it's step, 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 rather than a smooth curve. And then cosine is just the cos. Yeah. It's you know, sine and cos. And tan, sine, cos, tan. So it's just the cost of the trigonometry. I actually was good at trigonometry. That was like the only good. <laughs> so I knew those were the three things you had to know. So, all right. Yeah, sine, cos, tan. But interesting. All right. So, but when he says go figure it out, what's your step? Like, what did you start building this platform on this software? Oh, go figure it out means basically go and read everything that exists out there. And this is, you know, back in the day when none of this the cool stuff like ChatGPT didn't exist. So, you know, you would literally be sitting in your library looking at books and then online. Online was relatively okay. It wasn't too bad. Not like my undergrad days where Google didn't exist. Whereas by my PhD days, Google did exist. So that made a life a lot better. But really it's reading a lot of stuff that has been done in thousands of papers and trying to figure out what is it that... That's kind of the literature review. That's the first step of your process. So you spend the first year just learning what's happened and trying to figure out which elements of what is already out there you can use to start building the fundamentals, the building blocks. So I coded everything in C and assembly because the C was for the software bit that we were coding. And then I wrote in assembly for interacting with the hardware. That was pretty much it. We didn't use anything else. And because the processor power 20 years ago was not very high and you couldn't have heavy code. So a lot of the work I did later on, once we had written the code, was reducing the code. So like I spent months on optimizing. So let's say you could have a code which is 10 lines of code, and then how can you compress it to two lines of code and make it faster and much lighter? So it's, it's all of these things. 
So it was a lot of different things that we worked on, which aren't that relevant today because processor power is so much higher. You don't need to worry about optimizing that much. But I, I loved it because it was so much fun. I love the optimization bit as much as I love the coding bit. But even back then, it's like, like you said, Google was there. So I could YouTube probably how to build a website. Maybe there were only like 10 things like WordPress was there. So it's kind of easy after you get started with it. But when you're building something like this, what are you building on? I'm just curious, like technology wise and how you do that. And if you had any background on that, or if you're just like recruiting undergrads to like, hey, this is my thing, come help me. Oh, no. So this is this is what I studied. I always studied. Like I've coded in C since I was maybe, when did I start my computer science in school? Maybe when I was 14. Because C was the dominant language back then. So I coded in C, like I used to write games, I used to write stuff just for fun. So I'd always coded in C. Oh, C, yeah. Okay, gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah, so by the time I got to my PhD, I had been coding for like 10 years. So that was the easy bit. Coding itself is easy. That's not the problem. The problem was figuring out all the signs of the recognition. And that took a long time to figure out. But the actual coding is straightforward. Okay. So when you're saying C, what does C stand for? Because I've always heard that and I've heard like C++ and like, can you explain the difference in that for me? That is an excellent question. I knew the answer to that. I don't know exactly, but I think there was a language called A and the language called B. And so when... <laughs> That's funny. When, no, on, honestly, I do need to look it up. And C++ is just literally... C with some libraries and it's just a better C. There's no real difference. So that's why it's called C++ because plus plus in C means plus one. It's just a short form of writing C equals to C plus one. Yeah. But instead of saying that, you can just C++ instead of writing that whole thing. So all C++ means is it's just a little bit better than C in certain ways. It's like chat GPT 3.5 versus chat GPT 4. Or actually I heard there's only really three, three and four but then we don't really know the differences, but we know the newer one's better, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. And it does seem like you're right. I'm trying to do a little bit of research, but it looked like C language was 1972, B language was 1969. I'm sure A was obviously before that. So it seems like you're right. Yeah, so Dennis Ritchie created C. He was at Bell Labs. You're good. <laughs> but I remember there was something called B, and that's why he just called it C. And that was, that's really it. There was no other reason. So it's quite funny. He called it C just because somebody else had made B. Right. It's funny that instead of C++, why don't they just do D, E? Just keep it simple, you'd think. But I guess that's computer programmers. No, you know, you know why? Because B was a different language made by a different person, whereas C++ was made by the same people. Just the, It's literally the same code, but slightly more libraries and more functions. And that was it. Yeah, interesting. So like if you think of C was very, very lean. It didn't have libraries or very few. What that meant is you could write everything from scratch and make it incredibly lean because that's all people cared about in the 60s, 70s, 80s is how do you make it as light as possible. But by the time it got to 90s, when C++ came out, people were less worried about making it lean. They were more trying to make it easier for coders so that everyone doesn't have to rewrite the same code. So let's say you want to draw a circle instead of you having to write the entire code to draw a circle, you would just call a function called circle. And that's it, you know, like in Excel, if you say VLOOKUP, it does a bunch of things instead of you having to actually code VLOOKUP. So C++ was C with a bunch of functions and libraries that you could call to do commonly used tasks. Thanks for simplifying that. I guess maybe easier for even other people who might be like a little bit lost, but I guess you could think of 
if you brought up Notepad on your Windows computer and a simple text versus if you bring up Microsoft Word and like the rich text and you're saying like, it's kind of similar as far as like all the other stuff and how easy you could do it versus I think your VLOOKUP thing made sense. I'm very good at Excel, so I understood that. But if you didn't, it's the whole idea with Excel, making it easier versus us writing it down right on, on a hand and paper and figuring it out. Yeah, exactly. But that was also the reason why I didn't write it. C++ was already available by the time I was doing my PhD, but we wrote it in C and assembly because we wanted to integrate into hardware like a camera, which doesn't, or at least didn't have back then, high processing power. So we wanted to go back to basic and not have any excess code that we didn't need and go down to the level of detail of each function that we wrote ourselves and how can we compress and simplify them. So there is almost very, very little, like 10% of the code that you would use in somewhere like Java. Well, I'm curious, say you fuck up one line of code and see why you're you're doing all the programming, it sounds like. Does it all not work? Or do you know that's the error at a certain part? Like, I'm just curious how that works for you when you're coding. The whole thing fails. <laughs> that's what I thought. That's what I was wondering. <laughs> it was very stressful when we compiled it and it didn't work because you're like, you have no idea. <laughs> yeah. It's not like one part of the document. It doesn't tell you if it's a thousand pages that is page 50 versus... Like if you have a thousand pages, you don't know. Well, it wasn't as bad as when I first started coding 10 years before that, where you have to compile the whole thing and it doesn't break and you can't do anything. So with .NET, for example, which we use to write the code, you can go step by step. So you can just run, like run and step. So you go line one, run it, line two, run it, and then you can find out where it breaks. But it doesn't necessarily mean that's where the bug is. The bug might be elsewhere, but yeah, you can go line by line. But by the time I finished my code, it was tens of thousands of lines. So it was complex. Well, so what was that like after you ran it the first time when you were fully done? You said it didn't work? No, no, no. It, was, it wasn't really like that. We built it step by step over the years. Like, you know, we would build some bit and we'd always build them separately. Like we had 20, 30 different coding files so that you can run each file separately, which did separate things. So it was much easier to manage as well. Because one of the things we wanted to make sure is it was very well documented, well structured. So when we handed over to someone else, like when we sold the company and handed that, they would find it really easy to go with it. Okay. And again, when you're saying we, are you just talking about your professor, you're the business guy, and then you? But you're the one, again, doing all the computer programming. Yeah. What's the names of the other two? Yeah, it's Professor Don Munro and Mr. Martin George. Okay. And so, yeah, when you're saying we, again, you're saying you did all the coding, but they all had separate things that we're doing. And so, correct. yeah, so you yeah. did this over, by the time you're done with your PhD, did you sell the company or was it right afterward? Or tell us about the sale. So after the PhD finished, I spent another year doing my postdoc. I was still at Bath. I was working on the same thing. And then at the end of my postdoc, the company got acquired by one of the clients we had called Photonation. And yeah, I finished my postdoc, the company was sold, and then I moved to London. Okay. And so when you're getting out, you're 27 years old. Did you get a big fat check right then? Or like, how did that work out? Yeah, it was a one-off payment for everybody. It was an exit. And that was that. Because the way we had built it is, it just ran itself. It didn't really need any service. It was code that worked in the camera. And we trained the people who acquired and then knew how to maintain it. So they didn't really need anyone. And also they didn't have any presence in the UK. It was a California-based company and they didn't want to have a new country set up. They were happy having their base in California. So they didn't really have any need to keep us in a different country. Right. Because you had the best code writer on the planet write it all up. That's why, right? <laughs> no, 
No, it's just years of iteration, bug fixing, making sure it works and testing on lots and lots of integration. So, you know, it was pretty well tested. And also with defense, you need to be very, very good at being as bug-free as possible because the tolerance levels are much, much higher. Yeah, we're not talking about a bad meal or anything like that. We're talking about, yeah, you getting into a country or national defense kind of thing. No bugs. It makes sense. It's like Elon when they're putting rockets to the moon and whatnot or putting satellites up. Tolerance is low for errors. So you do that. But when you come out and you're 27-year-olds, again, I, I just want to be in your mindset of you probably never imagined that you'd make this much money. You're 27 years old. It sounds like you, if you're financially smart, you never have to work again, right? I mean, go through that thought process of, wow, it's pretty awesome. We just sold this and I got all this money. What do I do now? I don't think that was something I ever considered. Even now, like I just can't sit idle. Even when I'm in a holiday for a couple of weeks, I get bored. So it's something that I can't imagine doing. doesn't matter. The money is irrelevant. Like I want to do really interesting work. I wanted to learn more things. And I knew that my biggest gap in those years of PhD and startup was business and management. I, I wasn't really involved in any of that. I was really happy and busy with my coding. So it's something I really wanted to learn. And the easiest way was to learn on the job and get a job in a very business-focused company, as opposed to going and studying again and doing an MBA. So that's how I ended up joining Deloitte. I think most entrepreneurs, and I totally understand, I'm the exact same way. I can't sit still. I need to do something outside if I'm not doing something business-wise or whatever. I'll never be satisfied. Like, I live right by the beach. I can't go to the beach and just lay down. It's not my thing. But when you're 27, I mean, were you married yet? Just, I mean, did you do anything to celebrate? I just want to hear about the understanding of maybe this is a once in a lifetime kind of occurrence or how you're thinking, what your family thought or anything like that. It was something we, you know, like when you know that something's going to happen. I mean, obviously it took a while for all of that to happen. So you knew that it will happen. It was a matter of time. It wasn't something that I thought was going to make a difference from a lifestyle perspective. Like, you know, I wasn't going to change who I am or do anything differently. So like when I moved to London, I joined as a graduate. I wanted the training. So when you've done a PhD, you have the choice to join as a consultant, which is one level higher. But the problem is then they assume that you already know everything that you should have learned in the first couple of years of management, which obviously I didn't. So I joined as a graduate. So I had a very poor graduate salary, but that was fine because the whole point was how can I start from scratch in an entirely different area, which is business and management, which I knew nothing about, and then work my way up and learn. So yeah, no, it didn't make any difference, I don't think, to my life. Well, were you married at all? I was with my wife. Yeah, we got married a few years after that, but I was with my wife from university. I understand that perspective. Like if you have money and understanding that that's not everything, but it does have to bring a piece of you can do what you want now too, right? I guess you had been, so you're kind of lucky to that extent. I must say you have a very important point that is not talked about is when you have money, you have security and you can do things and you can take risks. And that's the one thing that most founders and people talking about startups don't talk about is how much security you need in life to be willing to take risks, quit jobs, do something which won't pay you for years and be able to survive. And that's something very few people talk about. And that's something so relevant that you have to be in a privileged position to be able to quit a job, whatever that job is, to start a company, knowing that it may not work, knowing that you won't get paid for a while and still have 
enough savings to get you through. I think that is the biggest thing that it helped me with. And it isn't talked about enough, but it's definitely the reason that I didn't worry about leaving a really good job. And I enjoyed my years at Deloitte for sure. And starting something, not having a salary for a few years, using my savings, and then using the money we had from before to use as seed capital to start the company. So yeah, I'm very much that safety net, the security is what allowed us to have the patience and long-term view of building Mystery Vibe that we wouldn't have had otherwise. Thanks again, yeah, for mentioning that too. Because yeah, that is the hardest part. There's a reason that a lot of people want to hear about startups, that people don't have kids or anything like that because their overheads looks because they can take on the risk. But once you have kids and get something nicer and all that, it makes it so much more difficult to be able to take that risk and know if it's going to work. So it sounds like when you went to Deloitte, how about we talk about that? What did you learn that maybe we could learn from as listeners when you went there? The thing that I learned that I never knew before I got into consulting and Deloitte was selling as a concept where, you know, if you want to hire someone, you have to sell your company. So you attract talent. If you want to get investors, you have to sell the long-term vision and the dream of what you want to achieve and take them on that journey. If you want to get customers for your product, you have to sell the benefit. What's in it for them? What is the job that it's going to do for the customer? In every aspect of what we do as a startup or generally in any corporate is selling, which is something which seems very obvious, but it's something that is completely invisible when you're a researcher, you know, researching on maths and physics and science and writing code. You don't have to sell anything to anyone. You literally sit in your lab and research and work, and that's it. It's a very, very different world. So my seven years at Deloitte, what I really took away is how do you sell the right way to the right people that it makes sense and you're bringing them the benefit that they want so that they will be your customer for life. And by customer, you can use that word interchangeably, whether they're an investor who will always invest in you because they believe in you and they know that what you sold to them is you undersold and what you delivered is even more. Same with hiring your team members, same with getting your paying customers for your product. And all of that stems from all the same point of learning how to sell, what story that you need to create for each circumstance, and then how do you then exceed what you have sold so you deliver more than you have said you will. Well, can you give us some examples? Because it doesn't sound like just from your personality type and understanding that you're good at computer programming and whatnot that Maybe you were understanding a sales or a sales guy, like you might have been not as outgoing or whatnot. Just explain to us how you're able to make that transition, what you learned, or give us some real world examples of what we can learn from. What I would say is I didn't, I didn't make the transition from being a researcher to being a salesperson. So I learned the fact that whatever you do, you need to sell that in the sense that you need to explain that to the stakeholder, whoever the stakeholder is. What I did was I did it my way in the sense that I love logic and facts. And as a researcher, that's all I cared about. So when I was selling something to someone, so let's say an example was one of my clients was HSBC and I was working on a compliance project and I had four banks, four parts of the bank, investment bank, commercial bank, retail bank, and private bank. And the way to get them to agree to do something jointly was to tell them what each of their needs were and how the project would address their need. So there'll be four different sets of requirements that would be 
ticking their boxes for their bank and why it would help them in being compliant, and then telling them how what we're building would specifically help their part of the bank rather than try and build one set of requirements for the whole bank, which would be very difficult to then tailor and customize to each of them. I would say that my sales isn't really any different from how I would teach logic. So I always try to sell very directly and logically and based on facts and numbers. And and I'm always very direct about it. So like if I'm fundraising, I'll tell my investors, this is what I'm going to do with the money. And this is what I think, how long it will take, but it will probably take longer and it will probably cost more. We may not make it to the result we want. And I might have to come back and ask for more money to get there. But I would just say that and I'll be very upfront about it. And to me, that works because my investors expect that from me. I can't imagine I would be able to do it any other way. Well, the HSBC one, that just gives me a headache. And I think would put everyone to sleep if we went into details of that one. Can you give us details of any other cool project or something where you can... Thank you for saying about the investor fundraising. I understood that. But there has to be some other interesting things that you worked on where you could we could learn from other than through HSBC. The other one I would say is uh, Canon. So I spent a year in Amsterdam working for Canon, the camera company. And the project I was working on is field service. So their engineers used to travel around from company to company going and fixing printers. So they also make massive printers, printers which take up whole rooms. And when we started the project, their biggest challenge was they had to do multiple visits to solve a problem. So they'd have to first go to the site, figure out what's broken, then come back a few days later, get all the parts from somewhere else, then go to the site and fix it. And then often they would be traveling all over, driving a lot, because there wasn't really a system to find the nearest. This is a long time, 15 years ago. There wasn't really a system to tell them who's the nearest engineer, who has all the parts. And real quick, yeah, before we get into details of what your job was there, but we're talking about printers that I take a roll of film somewhere and they print it out that they'd have to fix? No, no, pr- printers which print massive banners, like advertising and banners on the subway. Oh, okay. Huge printers. But there's Canon printers for, yeah, the huge ones that put on the subway. That's what you're talking about, fixing those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, massive. They take up a whole room and they need a lot of maintenance. Yeah, they're very expensive. Yeah. And so what was the problem again, what you're trying to solve? problem we were trying to solve is make it a very efficient process for the service engineers so they go and fix it first time and a really nice experience for the customer so they get very quick and prompt service. It was all about improving the service. Yeah, And what we did was we built an Android system which used the traveling salesman problem and had all the database. We uploaded all the data of every engineer, we gave them, their their cars had trackers, so we could locate where each engineer was at any time. It's like Uber, but before Uber. And we would then, the system would automatically inform the nearest driver, the nearest engineer, with the right skill set, because every engineer was trained in different things, with the right paths, and get them to the customer, and ideally fix it in one visit within 24 hours. And to do that, the different data points we had to integrate was understanding what went wrong from the data that we could gather from the error codes of the printers itself. So we would know before we even send someone, having a database of every engineer across Europe and their skill sets in a database which was constantly updated 
having a database which was again very regularly updated of all the paths that they were carrying in their car at that point and then the location of the car so adding these four data points together and building a traveling salesman algorithm solution to it we could reduce the ultimate metric was we could increase the number of jobs an engineer could do from four a day five a day so that was a 25 percent increase in their output and a much happier customer and a much happier engineer which led to a 60 million euro per year saving and so did you write up all the code yourself in c programming or what no sadly i didn't i was managing coders and not getting to code i did get to do a little bit of the tech but one of the challenges of being in a big corporate is the more senior you get the less hands-on stuff you get to do which is why ultimately i missed it too much and i got back to building mystery vibe so did canon were all these independent contractors of canon or something like that the ones that you're geotagging their cars who have the products to fix these or the parts to fix these printers no, no, they're their employees. They're the service engineers. Okay, they're employees of... Okay, so that's how you're able to keep all that. Because I'm like, if it's independent contractor, it just seemed like it'd be very difficult to manage. They're all employees. They, they did the job anyway, but before it was all manual and after it was all automated. They'd have their phone and the phone would tell them everything. And maybe this will help other people too, as far as... So you're working at Deloitte during this time. Canon hires Deloitte and specifically you and your team or whatever. Like how much are they paying... Deloitte to figure out this, which eventually you said you've saved them $16 million a year, which is, you know, fantastic. But it's like, I'm just curious, how much do they pay y'all to come in and help them figure this out? So it's not exactly, it doesn't work like that in consulting. What happens is it's more to do with people on the team and the price per people per day. So this was a very big project called One Canon. It was a massive project that Canon did over five years involving multiple consulting companies. And I think the whole project was maybe $300 million or 300 million euros, something like that. It was very big over five years. And different consulting companies had different parts of that project to work on. And yeah, they would have divided up that budget between themselves. So it's a very big project. So when you're working again at Deloitte and you're being hired by Canon, are you kind of like in Canon's offices all the time? So it almost feels like you're an employee of Canon? Yeah, that's true for all my projects. So I would literally, I lived next to the office in Amstelveen, which is near Amsterdam. I used to be in their office, have their badge, their laptops, yeah, everything, as if I was a Canon employee. Yeah. Okay. My boss was a Canon employee, yeah. Okay, yeah, because I've always wondered like how that works with consulting companies, especially Deloitte. I've heard of them or like these other ones. I feel like they have to pay a lot, which you said, what, it was like 300 million, but it may be that's for around the world and you're getting a piece of that to come in and fix whatever. It's a massive project with like, you know, let's say 20 companies involved over five years. So it's a very big project, at least that one that I was in. Is it hard to talk to these other companies if you don't really know them to put this all together? Or did you just do this program like in the UK that you're working on versus like one in America? This project was between Deloitte UK, Deloitte Netherlands and Deloitte India. So I worked with my colleagues in Netherlands and India to build the whole system. People in consulting are extremely friendly because this is something they used to, you know, they work with lots of multidisciplinary teams to bring things together and get things done very quickly. So, you know, it was, I would say it was very easy to work across different countries, different teams, because it's something that at least, you know, my colleagues in Deloitte, whether they're in Netherlands or India, it doesn't really make any difference because all of them have the same mindset on getting together with complete strangers and figuring things out. 
Well, thanks for taking that deep dive in that. I think that was, again, interesting to me and to understand kind of how this all works. But what eventually, I guess, made you leave Deloitte? You said, how long were you there? And I know you said earlier on, you always knew you'd come back and kind of make a company. But what was the final straw or writing on the wall that you're like, hey, you know, I don't want to do the consulting stuff. I feel like I've learned a lot, but I want to go start my own business again. So in consulting, I spent seven years in total. And I felt like by then, I had learned quite a lot on management, business, sales, marketing, etc. And I always knew I have to do it sooner rather than later in terms of making the jump back from corporate to startup world. Because the longer you stay in corporate, the easier life is. You know, like, compared to startup, corporate life is very easy, I think. Like you said, if you then have kids and you have more expenses like mortgages and stuff, then it becomes really complicated to take that decision of having no salary for a few years and living off savings. So I knew that, so I was 31, so 10 years ago, 32, sorry, uh, I'd gained enough knowledge. And I knew that I found the topic which my co-founders were equally passionate about and we were ready to go for it and see what happens. And then that was it really. I talked to my bosses, my, both my client and my consulting bosses and they were very supportive. They said, oh, this sounds like a great idea and you should do it because if you don't do it now, you're not going to do it 10 years later. What's the worst that will happen? It's not going to work and you always have a job to come back to. So that's why I felt very confident going for it. And so your business founders in this new one, I knew you had mentioned before, like your wife, you, and there was one other person. Was that, I forget, was it one other person, the same person that you worked with while you're doing your PhD? Or? Yes, correct. Yeah. Who was that? Out of the two? Rob Weekly. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. My co-founder and CTO. Yeah. Was he the professor, I forget, or the business guy? No, no, no. So he was on the camera side. So he was working on the hardware side in another company. So I used to work with him all the time. Oh, yeah. He wasn't one of the two that you originally started with. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. No. So he was the hardware guy and I was the software guy, which is why we work so well together. Okay. Interesting. All right. And thanks for the run up up to this point. If you don't mind, I think what we'll do is we'll split this kind of in the two parts. We'll jump right back into Mystery Vibe and more of the details and kind of go into the details like we did here for all your information that you gave us up to this point, if, if that works for you. Yeah, that's great. Okay. Well, again, thank you for telling us your story up to this point. And we look forward to doing the part two, which should be coming right after this ad. Want to expand your customer base and boost your revenue? Brevo's comprehensive CRM suite is tailor-made for businesses like yours. Brevo, formerly known as Send in Blue, is the leading customer relationship management suite designed to fully cultivate long-term customer relationships and empower businesses to expand in a fast-changing digital world. With Brevo, businesses have unified view of the customer journey in one easy-to-use platform to grow meaningful relationships. Brevo makes the simple and accessible with intuitive and scalable marketing and CRM tools such as email, SMS, WhatsApp, chat, marketing automation, meetings, and much more. In a world where marketing encompasses the entire customer experience, Brevo puts the focus on lasting relationships with real people. Brevo gives you the tools to attract, engage, and nurture customer relationships. You can build automated customer experiences, email marketing workflows, and landing pages that guide your customer to your main message. They're there to support businesses successfully navigating their digital presence in order to strengthen their customer relationships. It's the perfect business growth tool for marketers, SMBs, 
and sales teams looking to build with a consolidated marketing and CRM toolbox. Brevo's pricing structure is based on the number of emails sent, not the number of contacts stored. Get started with Brevo for free by clicking on their link below or going to brevo.com forward slash entrepreneur and use the promo code entrepreneur to save 50% on your first three months of the starter and business plan. Again, that's brevo.com forward slash entrepreneur and sign up for free. Do you still wonder who all those people are visiting your website, but never convert and then just disappear? Discover the game-changing tool that top professionals are raving about, Pearl Diver. Pearl Diver is a cutting edge platform that provides in-depth visitor identification, enabling you to uncover valuable insights about your website visitors. By uncovering names, emails, company details, and more, Pearl Diver empowers you to turn anonymous traffic into high quality leads. With Pearl Diver, you'll supercharge your marketing and sales strategy. Don't settle for guesswork. Dive deep into your visitor data and revolutionize your customer acquisition game. Ready to make waves? With Pearl Diver, you see actual people visiting your website. You get to know their names, emails, phones, titles, and company details. Never miss out on the opportunity to engage with your hottest leads. Pearl Diver matches your email interactions with identified website visitors, providing the insights you need to close your next deal. To learn more, visit pearldiver.io. That's P-E-A-R-L diver.io. See who's behind those clicks today and learn how to connect with them at pearldiver.io. Hey, Sam, thanks again for joining us for part two of this interview. Thanks for having me again. It's great to be back. So where we left off in our story, we we're just talking about Mystery Vibe, kind of how you started. We briefly talked about that in the beginning, but all you told us is that you put a million in pounds, which just in case anyone was wondering, I did the calculations back in 2014, that'd be equivalent to about 1.7 million US and that you had about two years of product development or research. And that's kind of as far as we got on the mystery vibe story. So 2014 is when we started and our initial area of focus was pelvic pain after childbirth. So genital pelvic pain, as if it was such a big topic and is still such a big topic and is actually quite simple to address through pelvic floor therapy. The challenges most people are either unaware or don't have the resources, whether it's time or money to access this therapy and then often they end up living with pain for a very long time. So our work was very much R&D for the initial years, developing different materials because our goal was to make it very malleable, bendable, stretchable. And that's a key engineering and key innovation in all of our devices. So the Crescenda device you're saying, that was your first device? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just to make sure I'm clear and understanding at first, it was coming in with the goal of helping women after childbirth feel better. Has it transitioned more to a sex product? Right, yes. And that's a really important point. We wanted to make the devices very pleasant and enjoyable. So the pleasure element was key in the design, both from a hardware and software perspective. And the testament to that is we've won over, I think now, 40 design awards internationally, including some of the toughest ones like Design Week 
where we beat Apple Watch to win the Design Week Award. And it's all down to the actual product design, where because in those cases, the medical efficacy isn't relevant. It's all about the look and feel and usability. That's what they're judging it on. So it gives us great pleasure to be recognized in these leading design awards, which are often limited to the top hardware companies with massive budgets. So if someone just says it's a sex toy, what do you say to that? Oh, no, absolutely. It is equally a sex toy. And often that is the way to present it and position it when someone wants to introduce it into a bedroom without thinking medical, without thinking problem solving. So we would encourage that 100%. We'd encourage people to talk about it as a toy, as a aid, as a pleasure device to introduce it into the bedroom when they don't necessarily want to talk about problems. So for example, Tenuto, which is our device for ED, if a, a guy wants to introduce it in order to improve his erection, he can very easily talk about it as a pleasure toy that is designed to help his partner have better orgasms, which is a much nicer conversation than saying, I have a problem getting erect and I need this medical device to help me. We 100% encourage that. Okay. And so if it was another sex toy that was, say, somewhat similar, do they not have the same type of, I guess, software or whatever to, let's just say erections, because I can understand that <laughs> a little bit better. What would you say that versus a toy that looks similar, does it not take into account all these other little things that you do to make it actually something that will help me, I guess, if I wasn't even wearing it? Correct. So the reason why Tenuto is so effective, one is because it's designed by doctors to deliver very specific frequencies at specific points. That's one part. But from a user perspective, the reason why it's effective is it hugs the glands, the head and the base of the penis very precisely because it's malleable. And that's what is unique to our devices. So no other devices are created in this way. They're all fixed in shape and size because obviously that is the simpler way to build devices to make them fixed. But the way we designed Tinuto, for example, it's incredibly flexible and malleable, but it doesn't lose that tightness. So for various penis diameters, it will work really well simply by stretching it and placing it on the penis and then it will grip and adapt. And equally, it has a gap at the bottom, unlike rings, which allow ejaculation, making it one very useful if fertility is an area that the user is interested in, but equally very comfortable so that it's very pleasant to wear. So there are multiple areas that we focused on in order to address different benefits or provide different benefits from one device that would help both the wearer and the partner. And so the Tenuto, T-E-N-U-T-O, am I saying that right? Yes, Tenuto, correct. And then the Crescendo that you're talking about is the woman device. Correct, yeah. Okay. Just so everyone knows if they're looking at their website, if we kind of go between those two names, it looks like you have a few other devices as well, but I think maybe those are the one, two for him and her that makes it easiest. Yeah, those are the first and the second ones. And those are our main devices, which address two of the biggest topics, pain and erection. Yeah, we do have other devices. So Tenuto Mini is a mini version of Tenuto. And what it does is... Is that for like teenage boys or something? No, it is for uh, post-prostate cancer. It's at the other end. It's for probably in your 60s, 70s, 80s. So it's very useful 
to have a device to help you with your erection, prostate cancer, because obviously the nerves might be attached during the surgery of prostate removal, which is called radical prostatectomy. Now, the Tenuto device, the first one, which you see, Tenuto 2, has perineum stimulation element, which might be painful for someone who's had surgery and their perineum might be sensitive. So we designed Tenuto Mini in order to not have the back bit, which is the perineum stimulator, and only have the front bit. And the front bit does the penis stimulation. So Tenuto Mini can be used by men who have sensitivity in the perineum and scrotum, which is typical after prostate cancer. It can be used by others as well who have sensitive perineum or sensitive scrotum. However, Tenuto 2 being bigger device with more power and more vibration would always be more effective than Tenuto Mini unless you cannot use them. So if you think of it as like the iPhone Pro camera and the iPhone camera and the iPhone mini camera. So there will be reasons why you would have iPhone mini. For example, it's much smaller, much more compact, for example. But you know that if you bought iPhone Pro, the photo would be much better because it's simply better camera, more power that can be fit in a larger device. So that is exactly the same as the difference between Tenuto 2 and Tenuto mini. What happens if you have like an enlarged prostate? Apparently, that's what my doctor told me. And I got surprised. He was not ready to tell me and then stuck a finger up my butt. And he's like, yeah, you've got a large prostate. Do you have anything that helps with that? So uh, we do have another device called Molto, which is purely for prostate stimulation. It mimics the index finger, which is what a urologist would insert in the rectum to reach the prostate and stimulate the prostate. However, that's very difficult or almost impossible for someone to do to themselves. In this case, we designed a device which is which mimics the index finger again. It's very flexible and bendable, and that is the one which helps user directly or the clinician to reach and stimulate the prostate instead of using fingers. So yeah, that's the multi device. That's more for is it more for sexual pleasure or something like that? Versus I don't know if there is even a device that will help you with enlarged prostate. So it is designed for prostatitis, which is slightly different. So it's pain in prostate. So that device is designed because prostatitis, a good way to address it is to massage the prostate. And then over time, the pain will go away. So the challenge is how do you do that without having regular visits to a doctor, which obviously can be very expensive and time consuming. So this is designed so that you can have it on your, it's a one-time purchase, you buy it, have it in your house, and you can use it for, let's say, 10 minutes a week to stimulate the prostate and reduce pain, and hopefully the pain disappears after a while. Gotcha. So it's more of a pain thing versus like an enlarged prostate that that helps with. Not that I'm here to give you advice, because obviously you're a smart dude, as we talked about before. But yeah, I mean, you, you were smart enough to kind of do the MySexMD website, if everyone remembers, which is kind of the doctor-facing one versus the mystery vibe. I wonder if you had like a third brand or you could even make a fourth brand where literally it's the exact same product. Maybe you call it something else or maybe you can call it the same thing. But let's say if I'm 50 or 60 and I'm kind of like a prude and I'm not into like, oh, I'm never going to use a prostate vibrator to help me with my a large prostate. Well, what happens if you had a brand that was like, hey, this device just helps you with your prostate, something to actually help them where there's no even mention of sex or anything like that. Yes, so that's very important. So one of the things we are working on is building kits with hospitals. So for example, post-prostate cancer surgery kit, like a box that you get when you leave the hospital after 
prostate cancer after the prostatectomy surgery. In that way, we can make it really seamless, the user experience. And that also includes education and that includes the product. So to bring about change and help people, that would be the quickest way because when you have prostate cancer and you have surgery, there's no real guidance at the moment as to what happens next. Yes, your cancer is gone and that's great, but you have lots of issues as a result of the surgery that you need rehabilitation on in order to improve your quality of life. So the goal we have in how do you bring this at scale and remove the stigma around sex devices generally is to include it in a kit, a box that you get. Like in everything we do, we think of how do you make it very easy for people to access. And often stigma around it is a barrier. And how do you remove that stigma? I would say it's by far the biggest barrier. There's always stigmas around certain things. And unfortunately for this, it seems like there are some. But yeah, obviously you're always thinking. But the only thing I would add to that is getting better. There definitely is. But 10 years ago when we started, there was no one talked about anything. Now there's a lot more discussion. There's a you know, big newspapers talk about it like new york times would do not articles like full page articles about it so i think we are very lucky that in the last decade things have improved significantly and i'm sure in another decade things would be even better so i'd like to think that we are going in the right direction yeah it should definitely help you because even when i had you knew him but this episode 77 so it was a long time ago brian sloan yeah i, I know him well yeah yeah, yeah. You talked about it. So if anyone wants to check it out after this interview, it's episode 77. He came up with the auto blow they were talking about. He was saying whenever the New York Times or anyone like that actually wrote about his product, they said those were the best hitting articles because people are kind of curious as something you don't know as much about and whatnot. So I guess, you know, looking back, doing mystery vibe, are there any things that kind of stand out that could help entrepreneurs? I think generally, especially when it comes to building hardware and medical even more, budget twice the time and twice the money you think you will need in everything you know like whatever you think you need x dollars and x time double it because it just is how it is so that's probably the biggest lesson i've learned over the years is if i think i need to raise five million i should raise 10 if i think it will take me two years it'll probably take me four forecast reasonably where you're being ambitious, but with the goal that you can exceed them rather than forecast too high and always miss them. Because that's something I learned early on is it's very exciting to have grand forecasts, but if you miss them too many times, people lose faith in you. Whereas if you set reasonable but ambitious targets and then you hit them consistently or even better exceed them, then that itself is the story. You don't the numbers speak for themselves and you don't have to explain anything anymore. All you then show are numbers, whether it's numbers in efficacy, numbers in sales, numbers in customer feedback, whatever the metric, if you're always hitting them or exceeding them, then there is very little to explain the numbers speak for themselves. So I think those are the two biggest things that I have learned over the decade. How about personally? What's been the biggest challenge? I do have one thing that I, I was thinking of, I, and you might have said it early on, or maybe you didn't, but it was hard for us to get this interview set up only because it seems like you travel a lot. I do travel a lot. Yes. Yeah, so apart from the two COVID years, which felt very different, I travel 
probably half of my time. And the reason for that is when it comes to building relationships in healthcare, the only way, even now, the only way to do it is meet doctors face-to-face or corporates or hospitals. And just to give you an example, any busy, well, all doctors are busy, any good doctor who is busy, if you email them, they just do not have the time to check emails and reply. It's not something that is in their list of things to do. But they might absolutely love what you're doing and help you and recommend it and do all kinds of things because they really believe in you. But that thing will never happen if you don't get to talk to them. So we, between me and my colleagues, we go to every major sexual health conference in the year, whether it's in US, Europe, or Asia. That is where a lot of the traveling happens. Sometimes, you know, I'll be in San Diego one week back, then DC next week, then New York the week after. And sometimes there are a few weeks without travel. But the traveling to be in all these conferences, to stand at our booth, to be able to talk, meet new doctors, talk to our current partners, meet people generally and talk about our devices and how we can improve them, what they are doing, which is working well. All of that is incredibly valuable feedback. And beyond that, if you think of the number of people we meet per conference times the number of conference in a year. So let's say if we meet on average 500 plus people in a conference, at least face-to-face, multiply that by say 15 conferences a year. So we're talking about almost 10,000 people we meet a year who we talk to who are both doctors and users and potential users. That's a huge amount of customer survey, which if we tried to do in any other way, one would be incredibly expensive and two wouldn't really get the answers and the interactive Q&A that we get by meeting these people. So while the traveling is intense, the output and the value is so significant that it's something I think is indispensable. Did you figure that out at some point in time, like when you started? Were you just trying to do email and whatever just to, because as a business person, I mean, some people, business people love to travel and it just, it depends, like you kind of figure it out. I love to travel, so it's okay for me. I, I always look for conferences to go to even when I was a PhD student. Back then, my goal was to find the most exotic locations like Hawaii and and see if I can get budget from the university to go. So I haven't changed much in 20 years looking for good conferences to go. But generally, I love meeting people and I just, I don't think there is any other way to do a conference than being physically there. I've tried a few virtual conferences, but they were really a waste of time, I think. Right. Well, that's smart. Well, this also makes anyone who's listening to think it's important that you realize what you like doing, that it's not a drag. Like if you hated. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. If you hated emailing and just had to do that all day long and not talk to anybody, you wouldn't be as successful as you are right now. Definitely. And also for me as an engineer, I love being hands-on, whether it's building stuff or interacting with people to figure out requirements, figure out, you know, what we are doing well, what we need to do better. And I can't imagine doing it in any other way than actually being physically present, which is why, you know, in our lab, we, even during COVID, we would all be there because it's literally impossible to do our job without actually turning up to the lab and playing around with materials and 3D printing parts or running our PCB machine and getting printed circuit boards. So for us, 
that is the way of life that is normal to us is physically being present wherever we are while i can't really get the right amount of feedback and interaction especially from clinicians especially from busy doctors by trying to email them yeah makes total sense so i'm guessing like at the conferences you're bringing your devices are people like checking them out for like 30 minutes or an hour and then bringing it back to you and then you're letting the next person use it or like how's that normally go how's that sales pitch go no it's not really about the devices it's more about the efficacy and because we go to medical conferences so what doctors care about is a few things one obviously whether it's fda two is are there published journal papers with evidence which says this has improved xyz scores and third is who has recommended it, who has used it with their patients and are recommending it. So those are the three biggest things that matter when we go to a medical conference. And then once those three boxes are ticked, then the whoever we meet, even if they've never come across us before, are very happy to try it with their patients. So what that means is they'll say, okay, here's my address, you know, send me a few units, I'll give it to some patients and I'll see what they say. And if the patients say that this is, you know, significantly helping them, then if it's a hospital and they can't resell, then they will simply recommend, in which case there's no finance, there's no money involved. Or if it's a private clinic and they can resell, then they will buy from us as wholesale and then sell it directly to their patients. So so those are the two main things that happen as a result of conferences. And there is actually a third thing, which is there will be people who love doing studies, and that's incredibly valuable for us. So, for example, a conference we went to recently, I met a professor who wants to do a study on the male pelvic floor and using tenutus perineum simulation to study the male pelvic floor therapy. It's something we have not done before. It was incredibly interesting. So now we are working with him to get him the devices, help him structure the study. And then these are very long processes. It might take two to three years from the day we start to the paper being published, but these are incredibly valuable for us. So that's also another very important thing that happens as a result of conferences. Just so everyone's aware, maybe this could be the first time they're listening. My wife told me I need to let people know that when I'm joking, because my jokes aren't very funny about checking out the devices during the conference and then bringing them back. So that was a joke, just FYI. <laughs> that has happened before, not in a medical conference. No, not, not in a medical conference. We were at IFA in Berlin, which is a massive consumer electronics conference. What happened is, you obviously, leave your devices there. And someone did take it and then brought it back the next day. I didn't even know because we had so many devices on the desk. And I think it only happens in Berlin. And they brought it back the next day and they said, oh, you know, it's great. I'm like, yeah, please keep it. Don't give it back. <laughs> What's the name of the conference? IFA, IFA. It's a very big consumer electronics conference, like huge. What does IFA stand for? Oh, good. It's a hundred year old German conference. It's some German words. I have no idea. Yeah, it looks like it. Because I am, I am looking it up just so everyone knows. Like I'm just, you know, since I have it at an international funkus of something Berlin. <laughs> I don't, I yeah, don't know. It's, it's unpronounceable. So I have never known what it is, the full form. But it is exactly like CES, the Consumer Electronics Show in Vegas in Jan. It's the same thing, but the European version. 
Okay. I thought it was a huge sex show or something like that. So No, no. It's just a consumer electronic show. Okay. Well, that's probably good for you because you're, you're just enough of a like side thing that you're like, it is electronic that you would have a lot of people just like, oh, check that out. It's a good shock factor, if you will. You know, I guess if you're at a conference like that, I mean, I don't know. You, you can tell me, but it definitely has a storylines where it's like, okay, that, that's kind of interesting. So. It definitely gets the most interest from a press perspective. So when we go to CES, when we go to IFA, we get a lot of press coverage because press, when they go to these big conferences, expect big TVs and smartphones and electric cars, like things that they are used to seeing in these conferences. So when they see medical devices, because for these conferences, you have to be medical to be allowed in. So when they see medical devices in sexual health, it is definitely a new and quite a novel thing in the wider category of products. Well, I don't want to keep you on here too much longer. I did say something about the travel, but you love doing it. So I guess if I just asked that question one more time, is is there any one personal thing that, or, you know, business thing that you could leave our listeners with that experiences or hardships that you've kind of overcome, especially with, you know, making your business here? I think the biggest challenge with especially building our business is not knowing how long it would take and also whether it will actually be effective when we're at a point where we can test something that needs a very different mindset. So for example, we're working on a period pain device. Yeah. And we've been working on it for a few years. We ran a trial and it didn't succeed because the problem was usability. So it was effective. The vibration helped with pain relief, but it wasn't usable because the pain often lasts two to three hours. So it was too long. And the device was a standalone device and you'd have to hold it with your hand and which obviously isn't very convenient. If it's something for 10, 20 minutes, it's fine. But for two or three hours, it's not. So we went back to the drawing board and, you know, we literally taught the entire project. So we started all over again with a complete different material, complete different vibration, electronic motors, battery life, because we need a battery life of four or five hours, which is not common again. So that I would say is the biggest challenge generally when it comes to healthcare is unless it is incredibly user-friendly and effective, it just can't be released. You know, there's no point even putting it out there. It's not like software where you can release it and fix it over the air. And also it's not consumer hardware where you could sell it even if it's not effective. So with medical hardware, it needs to be incredibly effective and incredibly user-friendly. And often you don't find out, say, two or three years in till you can actually trial with people and then you realize, oh, you know, we've missed some major elements of it and we need to go back to the drawing board. Well, great. Well, thank you for doing a part two here and extending the interview. And I think we learned a lot. I really appreciate it. I guess if someone wants to say thank you for doing the interview, what's the best way for them to reach out? Email me, som, S-O-U-M, at mysteryvibe.com. Again, thank you for coming on, sharing your story. I learned a lot and it was very interesting. So thanks again, Tom. Thank you for having me. Flash forward to 2009, and I'm back in the golf business as a club pro, and I get a message on my MySpace page from a 14-year-old kid in Mexico claiming that I was his father. You know, he says I impregnated his mom in the champagne room at a club in Cozumel on New Year's Eve in 1998, and I immediately called bullshit because I remember that night vividly, and there were at least five other guys with me uh, that were also prime candidates. 
So I have to go down there as part of a paternity hearing, and the night before I have to testify. So if you want to hear more interesting stories just like this preview, well, become a Patreon member today. You know you're missing out. Just check the link in your episode description below to join the club or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. Join the club. Join the club. Join the club.